0: Okay, let's go. Hello,
1: and welcome again to another edition of Football Ruined My Life, a podcast series that looks at football with a kinder eye than is traditionally trained on football before the Premier League began its appearance. This is Colin Schindler, by the way. I'm joined, as ever... By my two good friends, Paddy Barclay and John Holmes, and today we're going to be talking about the captains of England. A particular reference to the man I still think is one of my great heroes. He's the only heroic hero, the one that gives me an emotional response as much as an admiration for his play, and that is Bobby Moore, who I cannot look at without. The sense of looking at Hamlet, had he lived another 20 years, A, he would have been knighted, and B, he would have been on every single talk show, on every single television station. What happened to him in his last 20 years was just outrageous, and it pains me every time I think about it. I just have this very strong feeling, and I want to know whether the two of you feel the same way about Bobby Moore.
0: Paddy. The answer is yes. I can remember growing up in Scotland at a time when the live televised matches were the FA Cup final, or the English Cup final, as we called it, and the Scotland-England match. So they were so precious, you know, those two sets of 90 minutes. And the thing I remember about Bobby Moore is that he summed up everything that made us feel inferior to the English. Rightly so, (laughs) buddy. I mean, assisted by the pristine white strip with the Lions badge. He was godlike, and he was beautiful, fit, His straight back sort of emphasised, I suppose, our inferiority, his poise. And then, of course, he started playing and and nothing about his playing style contradicted his image. I just think Bobby Moore was, yeah, godlike. And to be absolutely honest, though, it hurts. He did contribute, I think, to our Scottish feeling of inferiority to our beloved big brothers. Right.
1: John? The fact that Bobby Moore didn't play for Leicester City in any way lessen your admiration for him?
0: Not at all.
2: If I can just make a point here, and obviously he was the captain who won the World Cup and he played brilliantly in 1970 as well, but we should talk a little bit about this incident of Bogota and the bracelet. Can I just explain, John, to everybody listening who is younger than we
1: are, who weren't there at the time, that what we're talking about is an incident in the 1970 World Cup, before World Cup started in Bogota, Colombia, where the England team had played a friendly match. In the hotel gift shop, accused Bobby Moore of stealing a bracelet with extraordinary consequences that seemed to have worldwide implications, including you know, Prime Minister Harold Wilson being in contact with the president of
2: Colombia and so on. There are those amongst your profession, Paddy, who Mm -hmm. say, yeah, he did nick that bracelet. The best explanation that I've heard was that actually it was one of the younger players who did it. And he sort of took the blame. Mm -hmm. But you weren't there for the 70 World Cup. But you've heard others talk, others who were there at the time. What would they say?
0: they would lean towards your other theory that it was a younger player and Bobby took the rap thinking it was absolutely nothing and mistakenly thinking that the Colombians would think this was just a bit of English banter. That's one thing about the English, their idea of banter is completely one-way street. I would say that theory is the likelier one based on, as I say, I can only base it on theories. I just... Don't think there's much point in dwelling on something that we can't prove one way or another.
2: The only th- other thing I would say is that after he finished in football and probably during the time he was in football, he did consort with a number of people who you would say were not paragons of society. And mm-hmm. he did have contacts yeah. with the underworld, as it were. Colin, you know a little bit about this because you wrote the script for Buster. Yes. story of the train robbers.
1: Oddly enough, at the rap party, I was in the same room as Bobby Moore. This is the only time. And the combination of characters, the train robbers were there because I'd become friendly with Buster and Bruce Reynolds, who are the two main robbers. There was show business people. It was Julie Walters and Phil Collins and that level of, of showbiz stardom. And in the middle of all this was Bobby Moore. And he moved so easily between, between the, you know, he was part showbiz and part friends with anybody who was famous because he was so famous himself. I've met, you know, quite a reasonable number of well-known people during my life. And I've never been intimidated by any of them. And Bobby Moore somehow intimidated me, not by anything he did, but the, the sheer charisma and presence of this man whom I just idolised, I couldn't even bring myself to say hello. I just stood at the other side of the room and and looked at him with, with, with open eyes and I was 45 at the time. It wasn't like I was 15. That's Bobby Moore. He did have as you rightly say, John, a wide circle of friends. He wasn't somebody who could say no to people very easily. So th- is that a weakness or is that just the nature of the man himself and should we just accept it?
2: I think it's possibly a reflection, and is it not? I think it's a bit to do with the class system. And if we remember the 1960s, Football was a working-class sport. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of sports, the British attitude to sport, the English attitude to sport, Mm -hmm. was that the upper class used it as a way of either controlling the working class, which was in the case of football, if you remember, the way football became professional was a result of a clash between the North and the South and between commerce and the aristocracy. And it was Lord Kinnaird, who sort of bridged that. And if anybody's watched this recent film, The English Game, it actually tells the story quite well. I think you were involved with that, weren't you, Colin?
1: I wrote one draft of a script that was rewritten about 300 times, not necessarily to its benefit, I have to say. But what was it about Bobby Moore that made him so poised and so elegant? I mean, this is what we all admire about him. The only time I ever saw him lose control was when after the second German goal goes in, in the 89th minute in the cup final, because he'd seen the handball mm. and he chased it after the referee and stopped pointing at his hand. And that was so weird because you never, you simply never saw him do that. And the first goal is when he gets pulled down by, I think, by Overath is it? And then he gets up immediately, not looking for anything other than where Jeff Hurst's head was, and to put mm. the ball onto it. I mean, that's what I admire. I assume that's what everybody else admires. John?
2: That's absolutely true. As a player... You couldn't fault him. He also played at that point for West Ham, who were seen as the purists of the Mm. game. They They played quite advanced football in that respect. The fact, of course, was that West Ham, whose record in the league was pretty average at that stage, contributed three players to the World Cup winning side.
0: And also the mark of of great players, as well as his goals, we remember his misses, because even his misses were beautiful. You remember the one where he sort of dummies the goalkeeper and couldn't quite coax it into the net, plus the near miss from just inside the opposition half in the same 1970 World Cup. Yeah, with great players, you remember their occasional falls from grace. I remember in the case of Bobby Moore. A cup victory by Stockport over West Ham at Edgeley Park. It was 1-0 and the goal scorer was a midfield player called Tommy Spratt. And what made that night at Edgeley Park so absolutely fantastic was that Stockport beat a team including Bobby Moore. The times when he didn't win, he was still absolute class and led something.
1: I wonder whether there's a parallel with John Snow only in the extent that Snow was well known for not really liking county cricket, but doing his very best when he played test cricket. It was the international circuit and games that brought out the best in him, and he found it difficult to motivate himself for a six-day-a-week game on a county ground in Ilkeston. And I'm wondering whether... I didn't see enough of more for West Ham, except when he played City or when he was on television. I wonder whether the same thing could be said to apply to him, that really it was the international competition that brought out the best in him, and maybe that's why... West Ham never really threatened, after the 64 FA Cup and 65 European Cup Winners' Cup, they never threatened to do anything yeah. with all those good players. So, John, what do you think of that thesis?
2: I I know another cricketer who didn't do his best in county cricket called David Gower, oh. <laughs> who was similarly a sort of elegant performer, much admired for his poise and sang-froid and so on, mm-hmm. but that's by the by... I suppose that's correct. The interesting bit, of course, is that in those days, international football was definitely seen as the pinnacle. I wonder whether it is now. Of course, again, it's all explained by television. We get so much football week in, week out on the television, and that's where the majority of people absorb football. But in those days, we only got cup finals and international. Mm. So I think, in a way, that's why Bobby was as... Famous and
0: revered as he was. You're absolutely right. I mean, England, was it last summer, got to the final of the European Championship, which was their best performance since the days of Bobby Moore. I haven't a clue who the captain was. It Harry Maguire? Was it oh, Harry Kane? What? You know.
2: Well, that kind of underlines
0: the point that the international football doesn't quite carry the gravitas that it did I think in that's Moore, true. But, but
1: let me ask the question I mean, what does a captain? football captain do, John? He tosses up and chooses ends. Is there anything more to it apart from the
2: symbolism of the armband? There are captains who've been seen as inspirational. The interesting bit is whether a captain's a defender or an attacker. Recent years, most of the time, it's been an attacker. Mm -hmm. Shearer's an attacker. Kane, Lineker, Keegan... And the only defenders have been captain were Terry Butcher, who sort of stood in mm-hmm. for Brian Robson when he was injured. Mm-hmm. It's not like the Billy Wright, Jimmy Arnfield figures. Yes. Even Ronnie Clayton, who was Ooh. the first person who succeeded Ooh. Billy Wright. Johnny Haynes was a captain, of course. I, 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 how many of us know? What about
0: Cuthbert Ottaway,
2: who was the yes, first I, ever England captain? I knew you'd bring yeah. him up. Yeah.
0: I don't know what position Cuthbert played. Which is appalling, but they did have a striker captain in uh, Wood Woodward, Viv Wood- yeah. Woodward, yeah, Vivian Woodward, who yeah. was a great player who played for Tottenham I think, all- and
2: Steve Bloomer was also was also a forward, also a yeah. forward. and Charlie Bucken.
1: Well, I've got the list here of post-war captains. And you can prove your point. Okay. starting with Billy Wright and going on to Ronnie Clayton, Johnny Haynes, Jimmy Arnfield, Bobby Moore, then Emlyn Hughes, Alan Ball, yeah. Jerry Francis. Keegan, Brian Robson, Lineker, Stuart Pearce, David Platt, Tony Adams, very briefly, then Shearer, then Beckham, then John Terry, and then Ferdinand, Rooney and Kane. It seems to me from that list that there is an increasing tendency to go for forwards, whereas before there was the man at the back who could see everything, and you trusted more to see the game, and you trusted Billy Wright to see the game and and make the adjustments necessary.
2: Isn't that because now... The captain, as in cricket, actually, has become secondary yes. to the coach. Yes, We forget the fact that, you know, Walter Winterbottom was the first... England coach
0: wasn't he? Yes but even he didn't pick the team. No, The first right. to actually pick the team was Alf Ramsey. Ramsey yeah. yeah. What about goalkeepers? Was Shilton never England captain?
2: Shilton was England captain. I thought he a was. Standing on a couple of occasions. Yes. Dino Zoff
0: captained Italy yes. to the World Cup. He did.
2: Was Moore the best captain? Was Moore
1: the best captain we've ever had?
0: Was Moore of course he was because he's got a world championship medal to prove it.
1: Over and above that. Was more the best captain? If so, what made him the best captain?
0: What made him the best captain was that he captained the best team and that he was certainly one of the two best players in it, along with Bobby Charlton. He wasn't an inspirational captain. Personally, I don't really trust the notion of inspirational captains. I think there are loads of captains and now, of course, even managers who brandish a good game, if you like, You know, people like Conte who rant around And actually, it was a very civilised guy, Martin O'Neill, who started all this nonsense. But it is a much more play up to the fan, play to the crowd business than it used to be. Does the captain ever make
1: decisions that that affect the course of the game?
0: Yes, but not many. I think coaches have
2: become increasingly important in cricket, Clearly, the captain was an important figure uh, because they dictated tactics. He was the manager and the captain all rolled into one. Correct. And if you go back to things like the Bodyline Tour, mm. it was Jardine, not the coach. Well,
1: there wasn't There wasn't a coach.
2: Well, there was a manager. There
0: was a manager, but it was Plum Warner. But he only went for about a quarter of the tour, didn't Well,
2: he? no, I think Pelham Warner was out there the whole time, but he was a bit frightened, I think, of Jardine. He
1: was frightened of Jardine. Everybody was.
0: Cricket ruined my life. This, that's what uh, this is called.
1: <laughs> uh, John, when Gary took the England captaincy, What was his response and what was he going to do with it? Because, in a sense, his greatest contribution was what we all saw, was when Gascoigne got booked in Turin Mm. and he looks at Robson and says, have a word with him. That's the action of a captain, no Mm. question about
2: that. Mm. Of
1: course, he wasn't actually captain at that
2: time, was he? No, he wasn't. Terry Bush was the captain in that game, wasn't he? I think he saw it as a role of representing football. I think the 1990 World Cup, which I regard as being one of the great turning points of the modern game, this was before the Premier League, actually. Mm-hmm. If you remember, in 86, there was interest and so on, but by and large, it was still associated with hooliganism. And in 1990, the great fear about the World Cup was about British hooligans. And Moynihan went out there, he was sports minister, went out there at Thatcher's Instruction mm-hmm. to help the Italian police control, as they saw it, the English fans. It wasn't much about the football. Then we got that semi-final, which I still will argue is one of the biggest television audiences. There were pictures of the M1 being deserted at Westminster (laughs) Bridge and so on and so on. People started watching together. I think at that point, I certainly, and in conversations with Gary, we saw this as this is a chance to turn the tide here. You can represent football as being a sport that It's not just confined to working class jobs from council estates who like fighting. This was a game that actually, as it was in a lot of other parts of the world, which was classless. In Germany, it was classless.
0: Yeah. Shortly before the 1986 World Cup had been Hazel, which was an atrocity. Shortly before the 1990 World Cup had been Hillsborough, which was a tragedy. And I think the country understood the radical difference between those. And there was a general feeling that we can save this game, which for many years had been in decline almost since after the 1966 World Cup.
2: We didn't have a conversation about saving the game, but we did have a conversation about representing it. I had always felt that footballers were incorrectly portrayed in the public as their brains are in their feet. You know, cricketers are far more intelligent. And that had annoyed me because it was a sort of snobbish attitude. My feeling was that football was always the superior game. It is a better game. That's why it's gone round the whole world. And that's why the World Cup is as big as it is.
1: Returning to the captaincy thing, I think in terms of the longer running captains, the relationship between the captain and the manager seems to me to be fundamentally important. And although Moore and Ramsay were not two twin souls, they respected each other, and they got on together pretty well. I mean, Moore had a slightly anti-authoritarian view, as we know, of when to listen to the manager and when not to. But essentially, they respected each other, certainly on the field.
2: Billy Wright must have had a good relationship with Walter Winterbottom, yes, didn't
1: he? Yes, he did, yes.
2: I think, in the meantime, I'm not sure, Don Revy... Obviously, when he was at Leeds, he had a very good relationship with Billy Bremner. But at England level, it never quite worked, did it? It was Gerry Francis, wasn't it? I think it was Gerry Francis, yeah. Bobby Robson and Brian Robson were a good combination. The sad thing about Brian Robson, who, of course, was an absolutely wonderful player, as good a player and as good a captain as we've seen his club career was blighted by the fact that he went into this drinking culture. Yeah. And the drink did affect him, there is no doubt. Yeah. The truth of 1990 mm. and him being invalided out was it wasn't an injury. They went out drinking one night, he and Gaza, and Gaza came back and dropped, I think, the was a, was bed on his
0: foot. On his foot, that's right. Now,
2: that never came out, actually, publicly. No. I think Bobby Robson refused to
0: believe that that was true Mm. of his captain. But Brian Robson was still one of the greatest players, without question, ever to Captain England. If you were to say who was the best player ever to Captain England, he would be in that envelope. However, his captaincy was an utter disaster. Why? In 1990, as you say, there was the incident with the bed. He hardly played. In 1986, the team only got going when he finally admitted that his shoulder wasn't fit for play. correct. And once again, I think Bobby's love of Brian helped him to make the decision to persist with him for as long as he did. In between was the real disaster when he captained England in the 1988 European Championship, which was probably England's worst campaign in any tournament ever. They lost all three games in the group stage, didn't they, they? lost all three games. And, OK, Marco van Basten and Ruud Hoolett will have mashed better defenders even than a young Tony Adams. The second game was against, I can't remember, but the third group game, by which time they were already out, was an abject, worse-than-poor performance. It was dismal. Returning to, to Bobby Moore, I think I want to keep it on Moore and
1: captaincy. I mean, okay. the greatest... Game I think he ever played was in a losing cause. It was the you know the game that we of our age remember when they were beaten one nil by Brazil in Guadalajara. And yes. Bobby Moore had been under house arrest for the previous week. Yet he went out and played as well as he ever played in his life. The England team was as good as ever. They were playing in the midday sun, which they weren't terribly used to, and they lost one nil and should have really have pulled off a draw had Jeff Astle not missed a fairly open goal with his left foot before the end. Now. My question is, what happens to Moore? He's only 29 or 30 in Guadalajara in 1970. He's got four or five good years, particularly since he never had any speed anyway. Mm. His brain was always the key element in, in yeah. his play. He could have gone on to his mid-30s, but the decline was precipitous. What
2: happened? He was also a boozer. We've also brushed over amongst the bits where he went wrong. He was fined by West Ham. There was a cup tie up, but Blackpool it was Blackpool, Blackpool it was, yes. Yeah, Greenwood was still managing. It well, was. He was. Disciplined them. That's pretty
1: unprofessional conduct. Well, can I put a case for him? Because I think that's some unfair John. The game was almost certainly going to be called off the next day. They'd gone to Blackpool to play a frozen Bloomfield Road, and everybody thought the game was going to be off. They went out not to go boozing. They had about two or three drinks. Oh,
2: Colin, what an innocent chap you and are.
1: And got back to the hotel about half past nine, ten o'clock. It really? wasn't one of those times when they got climbed up the drain bar at two o'clock in the morning.
2: <laughs> it was unprofessional under the circumstances. It wouldn't happen now. No, no, of course and it he wouldn't was, now. he was known as if, actually, that he could take his booze. That was one of the problems. There were a lot of them. There was a drinking culture within the game at that point. But Bobby had become a boozer. And Jimmy Greaves was in that side, who was a boozer as well. I think one of the problems was that West Ham, they were a beautifully cultured side, but the culture within football was not particularly professional Mm. at that point. He might have done better to go to a team that was seriously challenging for a league title. Brian Clough always said that he would have wanted to sign more I believe he might have tried at one point. Well, Moore
1: would have been to Clough. What well, Dave Mackay had been to Clough when he signed for Spurs. He played exactly that role. It made sense. But he was on the verge of signing for Spurs just after Marty Peters had gone there and Ron Greenwood killed the deal. That drinking situation ended with Greenwood fining and suspending Moore and the relationship died at that moment. That's why I'm thinking it was over the top, the response by West Ham to more drinking that
0: night. I think a lot of players in those days, players who are associated with one club and given credit for loyalty, I think you've got to bear in mind that a lot of them were loyal against their will. I mean, mm. another one who would have gone to Tottenham like a shot was Johnny Haynes. Yes. And people say Johnny Haynes yes. stayed loyal to Fulham because yes. he was on £100 a week and so on. Tottenham was the club that he loved absolutely adored. He was a boyhood Tottenham fan, and he wasn't able to go in the same way Mr. Preston. Don Finney wanted to go to Palermo and was denied the opportunity. So I think a lot lot of players' careers weren't as they would have designed them, whereas the careers of today are, as John knows, much better than me. I think
2: if you look back, most of the captains of that era, Billy Wright was a one-club man. Mm -hmm. But Wolves were a good side during the period he was there. Wolves were challenging. He was succeeded by Ronnie Clayton Blackburn. Blackburn were a pretty good side. A lot of them, that was part of the nature. And, and Jimmy Armfield. And Jimmy Armfield
0: also. And Johnny Haynes, for the reasons that we've and said. And Tony Euro 96 Adams as well, actually. But I suppose by the time of Tony Adams, it had become a lot more unusual. Yes,
2: I think you then got a class of player who moved and improved themselves. Kevin Keegan, there is no doubt that by moving to Hamburg, he improved his play and his status and his position within the game. He was seen as a more complete person. He won the European Football of the Year, I think on two occasions when he was at
0: Hamburg. That's undoubtedly true. But, you know, another one-club man that I'm thinking about, probably one of my favourite players of all time, Mathieu Letissier. He would have been quite capable in his era, certainly the second half of his career, of moving wherever he wanted. But he chose to stay at Southampton and he was criticised for it. I think players should be allowed to be different. On the one hand, there are Keegans. Gary was an ambitious player who achieved an awful lot as well, particularly on the international stage. But there should be room in the game for guys who just want to stay where they are.
1: John, at one point you were representing captains of England at rugby and cricket and football. Yeah. So you had Gary Lineker, you had Will Carling, and you had Atherton, Gower.
2: Atherton, yeah.
1: Was their attitude to captaincy in any way different, or was it very similar in terms of the prestige and what they could do with it? And did they always want it? Was it always a boyhood dream and so on?
2: They were all ambitious. In Carling's case, it was thrust upon him. And that was in the era where rugby was just being taken over by coaches. And he had no idea he was going to be a captain. And in fact, when they did a survey on the team, most of the others thought he was the least likely person to become captain. Mm -hmm. But having got the role, he did see it as being a sort of spokesman for the game. Now, that may have been, to a degree, my influence, with Atherton, Atherton was known as FEC, which was either <laughs> effing educated C or a future England captain. But Atherton was definitely interested in the whole concept. I had Gower as well. Gower was a sort of captain out of the Bobby Moore mode in a way, who was meant to represent England because he was this effortless, graceful player. But in those days, I can remember... And this says a bit about English sport. It was obvious at one point early in his career that he was going to be a captain at some point or another. And I wanted to get him talking to people who'd done the role previously Mm -hmm. so that he learnt a bit. And we made an approach to Mike Smith, who'd been an England captain, England cricket captain, uh, to say, would he have a conversation? Would he meet up with David off the record and just talk about the whole thing? And the reply we got back was, that was a bit premature, really. He should stick to be doing what he's doing. They wanted to keep players in their place. They weren't meant to get ahead of themselves and so on. And the idea of grooming someone to be a captain wasn't around. And the idea that the captain should then get above himself, which came in when coaches came in, I think that was the bit where Gary Lineker fell out with Taylor. I think Taylor felt, I'm in charge, I should be calling all this. Because as you know, Gary called time on his England career. We announced he was going to go to Japan and he wasn't therefore going to have finished playing in England. And that would mean at that stage, it wouldn't necessarily have meant it now, mm-hmm. but it would mean that he was no longer England captain. And I think there was some resentment. I think Taylor wanted to call the shots on that. But I had always felt that, whereas the Germans quite often did this, they said, I'm going to finish my career after this World Cup, was a symbol of how the players in Germany and so on were held in a different regard to the players in England. When we were talking
1: about Spurs, we brought up, obviously, a lot Danny Blanchflower. As far as I'm aware, he did make decisions on the field that didn't always cohere with those of Bill Nicholson. But that was an indication that you could affect a game on the field as a captain.
2: As I understand it, Blanchflower was effectively captain and manager of Northern Ireland in 1958. Yes, I'm sure that's true. And they got to the quarterfinals. And at Spurs, he was very influential. I think it was Danny Blanchflower who got rid of Jimmy Anderson as manager, who'd actually not got a bad track record as manager, but Blanchflower didn't get on with him and wanted Nicholson to come in. And of course, then Blanchflower it was a pretty senior player. And when he played in the double side, he was well over 30 at that stage.
0: Yes, but very, very influential. I'm put in mind that, you know, sometimes players do adopt a sort of quasi-managerial role. We spoke earlier about Bobby Robson, and during Bobby Robson's all-too-brief tenure at Barcelona, he talked an awful lot about Pep Guardiola's influence on the club and how important it was for any manager to come in to get on with Pep, because not only was he a very opinionated player, quite lippy like Blanche But being Catalan, he was that much more powerful than the average player. So there can be players who have that role. I mean, Emlyn Hughes, you know, we mentioned Emlyn Hughes. And Emlyn Hughes and and Shankly had a very close relationship. Whether Emlyn Hughes would dictate tactics is something that I wouldn't know. But he certainly seemed to have an eye. Brian Robson, I can remember Manchester United performances where Brian Robson was... Pointing this way, pointing that way, switching the play, not necessarily by himself, but telling others to do so. So yes, there are some players, but my guess is they've always been rare and they're becoming even more rare in the sort of data-driven, demonstrative, manager-friendly world of football that we have now.
1: I associate, to return to my own home team. I associate much of Manchester City's success during the golden era, to which I mean 1966 to 1976, to the captain and then manager, Tony Book. Tony Book was the man. I mean, there was no question that when Tony Book was injured at the end of the championship season in 68, didn't come back till the beginning of the 69th year in January 69. They then went on to win the cup. The retention of the championship was a non-event by the beginning of September. It was a terrible time. And Book's return, revitalise the club, no question whatsoever. So rather as more with England and book with City, I associate the success with those strong captains. But, of course, Manchester City today are a different club. They do have extraordinary success, and I don't know from week to week who the captain is. I sort of do, in the sense that it's the bloke who tosses up at the beginning of the game, but there's no (laughs) sense in which Tony Book was clearly the captain. You could see players' eyes going to him. At various points, I remember specifically when Neil Young scored the goal that won. Oh, I'm sorry, John, won the cup in 1969 against Leicester City. When the players were going berserk, what went up to them at that moment when Shilton still picking the ball at the back of the net, saying, Calm down, calm down. Clearly, this is the time we're at our most vulnerable. You've just scored, they'll come back at you. Now, just calm down, stop it. Mm. And that's a captaincy for me.
2: It's interesting. These captains, who were great captains, don't necessarily make good managers. Billy Wright was not a good manager. manager, Bobby Moore, we don't know, actually. But the view in the game was that he wasn't going to be a good manager. Frank McClintock, who was a great captain, actually, at Arsenal, he was a disastrous manager. Bobby Charlton was not a good manager. So there's a difference, isn't there, between leadership on the pitch Dave Mackay won the league, didn't he, with Derby? But I think that was Clough's mm-hmm. yes, side, pretty was. much. He it didn't was. do much good anywhere else. And I can think of a few others who were quite notably good captains. Billy Bonds was a good captain at West Ham. Didn't become ordinary, a particularly ma- ordinary, good manager. Ordinary, and
1: well, so. Stephen Gerrard, I think you can probably add to that. Yes. Well,
2: well, I think it's yet to be seen, but certainly on the evidence of what happened at Villa, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily right. It does seem to be that elsewhere in the world, Beckenbauer was obviously a pretty good one manager. World Cup, yeah. Cruyff, who was captain, was obviously a brilliant manager.
1: But he played Gary out of position, didn't he? He didn't do much for Gary's career at Barcelona. He didn't like
2: English players, apparently. That was or one of his... English uh, he was notably anti-English. I think there was also a certain amount of resentment in that Gary became quite a popular hero in Barca because he scored a hat-trick against Real Madrid. Mm. And the people, therefore, immediately took to him and also the fact that he learnt the language and got himself around town. Sometimes the ego of people, especially the ego of managers, Clough would never want his captain to be a more prominent person than him. He had McGovern as his captain Now, McGovern wouldn't say boo to a goose. Mm. And do you think he chose him for that reason? It's possible, isn't it?
1: Yes, it certainly makes sense. I want to sort of start to wind up this discussion in one particular way and see whether you, you agree. There is a particular shot in 1966 taken from inside the tunnel. As the teams come out, the red shirts of England, the white shirts of West Germany, and at the head of the England team is Bobby Moore with the ball under his arm and I don't know whether you feel the same way. Emotionally, I feel Daddy's here. I feel really glad to see him and glad that he's the captain and thrilled that he's looking after us. Now, all right, dial down on the the over-sentimentality of it, but the the feeling is very strong. Verging on
2: homoeroticism there, Colin, I'm afraid.
1: (laughs) He's such a hero to me that I feel comforted by him. Did
2: the fact that Bobby Moore... Was a good looking blonde six foot man affected? Yes, probably it did. I'm afraid wrong with that. that looks always affect it. Otherwise, That's Beckham would
0: not have been yes. an iconic. English captain. Isn't it funny? Yeah. We've talked for 40 minutes and not even mentioned Beckham.
1: Yes. Why was that? Do you remember him being a great cap? I remember him emerging, having negotiated a wonderful payment that if they won the World Cup in 2006, they were thrilled that they had got an agreement with the FA that they would get something like £325,000 per man. Now, famously, the England team in sixty-six got £1,000, of which 40% was taken in tax. so They actually won the cup for, for 600 quid.
2: Beckham did do great things, though, actually, as what a, as a captain. Beckham is a difficult footballer to categorise because he was actually a brilliant striker of the of dead, dead ball. ball. He was not in the class of a lot of other midfield players that I've seen. What Lineker, you-, you could argue, was just a goal scorer, but scoring goals involves a little bit, it's, it's a little bit more varied, I think, than just taking dead balls. Oh, come on.
0: When I think of Beckham as a captain, I think of the way he used his authority in the famous, sorry, which could have been an infamous match against Greece. He was the only player that didn't freeze that day. Mm. It was, no, that was the extraordinary. Game, no question. Mm. The others mm. were, I don't know why, I think all of them were just rendered almost immobile by nerves. And, of course, it was a very good crease team. We didn't realise that at the time. We thought it would be a rollover victory Mm. for England. Mm. But when I say that Beckham used his authority, every ball, he almost literally pushed everybody out of the way. And he had, I think, eight goal attempts. It was the ninth that went in the net that got England to the... um, World Cup, so he uses authority. But you could argue that a great captain, in the perhaps semi-mythical sense in which we're using the word, would have inspired the other ten to play well as well.
1: But John, you've seen how the captaincy elevates a player, and there's a commercial value to be placed on on the captaincy. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I'm sure it's got worse in inverted commas or better.
2: Well, it's an inevitable that it will happen. And it was, I suppose, part of what I recognized in 1990, after which Gary did become captain, in that you are representing the game beyond. You are the public face. I always used to resent the fact that, again, this is coming back to what I'm talking about with the class system, that the players were the workers and they didn't want the players to be well paid or well remunerated and they actually wanted them to be their little boys and to do what they wanted you know the director of Preston who said you'll be going nowhere son they wanted people like Billy Wright who were not rebels Billy Wright was an absolutely lovely man anyone who met him will know what a nice genuine Guy he was. Oh, yes. Billy was not a rebel. Billy wouldn't have been one of the Bogota Five. He was fortunate. He used to playing for Wolves, who were a good side, and he had a manager, Stan Collis, who trusted him. Stanley Matthews, on the other hand, was a rebel. Stanley Matthews pushed hard for things. A lot of them of that era were tough people. Billy Meredith was one of the oh, well, original God. rebels who founded the Players' Union. Yes. And so on, going way back. But those people were not captains because captains were picked by the manager. And therefore, you often found that the captain was in an extension of the manager. It was only later on. And he, even what I'm saying a little bit about Taylor, and I then think it was, it was a resentment from the manager that the player had, was yeah. a bigger, more renowned figure than he was, possibly more articulate than he was.
1: Certainly more articulate and certainly brighter in all senses. And on that note, we'll say thank you to Paddy. Thank you very much to John. And from me, Colin Schindler, with a slight sense of, I wish Bobby Moore was still here. I do miss him. I do miss him. And a sense that I've enjoyed this podcast with the two of you to reminisce about a great man and an important job as captain of England. And as long as we don't win the World Cup, the image of Moore will remain as the paramount image to which we all aspire. Thank you, John. Thank you, Paddy. Thank you, everyone, for listening. See you next time on Football Ruin My Life. Cheerio.
0: I love him. I just love well, him. Well, listen, if you're guilty of more eroticism, Colin, so am I, because I stand by my earlier words. He was beautiful. And to see him in that white shirt... It's a memory I'll always treasure.
2: We're all influenced by Roy of the Rovers, who, let us not forget, Roy of the Rovers was captain and then he became manager.
0: Roy Race, I don't feel that I know him well enough to refer to him by his stage name, but if you set aside Roy Race in terms of glamour, I think the nearest that I've ever seen in my career, was Bobby Moore.
1: You can let us know what you think about Football Ruin My Life by emailing us at footballruinmylife at gmail.com. That's footballruinmylife, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.